Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. We should be doing more of what gives us joy and what makes us different and really what makes us excel. It's also understanding your audience and, and how, how you share your point of view that also matters. I want to push people to push on the system because I think the system isn't working. I think as a children of immigrants, a lot of us were taught like security is important to stay in the job, just be quiet, just put up with it. We all have power to make change and we all have power to live the lives that we want. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 30 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Deepa Purushothmoon. Hi, Deepa. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. And thank you so much for joining me from, uh, is it uh, California? I'm in Los Angeles. Thank you for having me. <laughs> my, my complete pleasure. Deepa is the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in corporate America, and the co-founder of N Formation, a company which provides a brave, safe, and new space for professionals who are women of color. Prior to this, Deepa spent more than 20 years at Deloitte and was a first, an Indian American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner in the company's history. In her time there, she helped grow Deloitte's social impact practice served as a national managing partner of inclusion and served as a managing partner of WIN, the firm's renowned program to recruit, retain, and advance women. Focusing on women's leadership and inclusion strategies, Deepa's mission is to help women of color navigate the complex and often opaque corporate structures of today, helping them not only take a seat at the table, but change the way the table is formed. Deepa has degrees from Wellesley College, Harvard Kennedy School, and the London School of Economics. She speaks extensively on women and leadership. She has been featured at national conferences and in publications including Bloomberg Business Week, The Huffington Post, and Harvard Business Review. Welcome, Deepa. Thank you for having me. That's a mouthful, but thank you. <laughs> well, it's, it's always good to have a fellow uh, LSE uh, alumnus or alumni. Yes. So yes. Yeah, good, good to see you uh, in the house. And it's funny because not that I've been doing it intentionally, but I've, I found that I've actually had quite a few either LSE grads or um, you know, faculty members on the show. So oh. obviously uh, it's doing something right. So. Yes, yes. Or you went to the right school that, that that's like your pool of people <laughs> that you gravitate to. So. Uh, uh, not necessarily, but okay. they, we seem to have attracted <laughs> each other. Just to kick off with the show, I, I'm a big fan of the arts. And I was just wondering, is there a performer song, book or film which you'd like to share? And this is not a test of coolness. 
So it doesn't have to be obscure. Yeah, I don't know. There's so many things, but the one thing that I find myself listening to over and over again, um, and partly because I'm doing a lot of speaking, and so I need to psych myself up, and because he just performed at the Super Bowl, is Eminem. So it's kind of a funny kind of a funny thing. You wouldn't think that that's what I would pick, but yes, his song, his songs will really get me into that different space that you have to be in when you're taking stages and when you're, you know, have to pump yourself up. So I'm playing a lot of Eminem at the moment. (laughs) I just love that. I'm a big fan of Jay-Z. So the old school stuff. Mm -hmm. So definitely when I'm trying to like get in in the mood, I think it's really good for a workout or whatever. Yes, exactly. um, Yeah, cool. Um, Anyway, so going back to the start, you have a really impressive set of degrees. Um, Was there any particular strategy behind that or did you just follow your interests? I would love to say that it was very thoughtful, but it wasn't. I grew up with Indian parents, right, who were immigrants to the U.S. And so it was beat into us, you know, mentally and verbally, you know, all of that, that you had to go to an Ivy League school, that school, where you went to school was really important. They had sacrificed so much to get here. And so um, there was that pressure, you know, to, to that it had to be of a certain level and a certain status and that sort of background. But beyond that, I don't know that it was that thoughtful. I don't know that I knew what I wanted to be. You know, I really gravitated towards politics. I always thought I'd be in politics, hence the Kennedy School and hence um, some of the work I did before I went to grad school. Uh, but yeah, the rest of it, I, I, it's not so not so thought out, It's it, it, but it worked out well. And it's it's funny because I don't know that I ever really ended up doing the work that I went to school for. Even, even my job at Deloitte was very, uh, I thought I'd do it for a year and I'd move on. So none of it has been very thoughtful. <laughs> No, I can totally understand you because both my, both my parents are doctors. Um, mm-hmm. And luckily, I, I didn't go down that um, medical route purely because I didn't like blood very much. But but actually, my mom is a, an anesthetist. My dad's a hematologist. And when you're growing up, you don't fully appreciate how good your parents are at their jobs. But actually, mm-hmm. afterwards, it's when you meet their um, their colleagues and actually the juniors as well. And the yeah. juniors are sort of giving lots of love to my mom. And you're thinking, oh, well, she must be pretty good at what she does. Yeah, absolutely. And um, on the consulting side, and as I told you before we came on air, I did one day in consulting when I was at EY. Um, And it it was actually quite a fun day. But what, what made you specialize in the TMT sector? So I I spent most of my career in the telecom tech um, and uh, media sectors. I was hired actually into London. So I went to London School of Economics. I was going to be hired into a strategy role there with Braxton. Um, I I literally had shipped all all my things. I was getting ready to go. And they called me and said, would I rethink my offer and would I take New York? All of a sudden, I was interviewing in New York, even though all my all my things now were in London. I ended up accepting the offer, and I was taken into New York. Now, it was unusual because I was the only non-NBA in the entire U.S. class. So that was very unusual for me, you know, given the others. And on the day I showed up, I had to pick an industry. Um, and most of the others had had weeks to kind of think about that, and I just had to pick one <laughs> and, and kind of select. And so uh, my father had been at AT&T for many, many decades and had been in telecom. And so, again, not very thoughtful, not where I thought I'd be for 17 years practicing, but um, that's what I chose because New York was a big practice um, and some of the other sectors that I might've chosen were not as big and it kind of went from there. So, But I mean, TMT, that's a great sector. There's a lot of stuff going on. It's quite exciting, but I like the point you make about being a uh, non-business school graduate because I remember Mm -hmm. a lot of my friends who went on to uh, business school, they, and, and they wanted to get into consulting. And that was the sort of the normal route. You mm-hmm. went to you know, one of the top 10, top 20 schools, yep. and then went from there into, you know, these, these various consulting firms. So it must've been quite interesting having that 
quite different background from the rest of the your, your peers. Yeah, it, it was interesting. And really, I think a lot of that imposter syndrome that I'm sure we'll talk about, and I talk about quite a bit in my work, really, I think, um, was amplified or, or maybe even grew, you know, grew from that time. So I remember going to um, orientation. So at that time, they would send all the people at the senior consultant level to one orientation for like a week, I think it was, and it was in Miami. And so there were 700 of us. And I was wow. literally the only one that was a non-MBA. And it kept you know, because people would say, where'd you go to grad school? Where'd you go to-? And it kept coming up over and over again. And to realize I was literally the only one for whatever reason was a really interesting place. It had positive positives and negatives. So I did feel like I was missing something like sometimes when they would at the time, I, you know, I wasn't as well-versed in spreadsheets and things like that, but you might've learned in business school that I just didn't, wasn't exposed to in the same sorts of ways. But the flip of it is being so different. I also it, it freed me in some ways to really speak my mind, to really not worry. I, I, when I joined, I did not have aspirations or think I was going to make partner. I just thought I'll be here for a year or two. I'm going to gain some skills and I'm going to go back to politics. And so it freed me to say what I wanted to say and be who I wanted to be. And I think that is a real struggle for a lot of women of color. And it was something that came out of just being so such a different odd duck in, in an atmosphere where I couldn't try, like I couldn't pretend at least on that aspect that I came from that same training and background. I, I just love that point about conformity because mm-hmm. actually being different is a good thing. Because I remember mm-hmm. when I started at, at EY, there were about like 150 grads and you're trying to, and, and for all obviously from the top sort of schools in, in, in the UK. Yeah. And you're thinking, how do you stand out from the rest of the crowd? Because there's that thing about trying to outwork people and yep. shine that way. But that's, that's a really tough thing to do I mean there are only so many hours in the week um and actually from that point in time it made me think look how can I do something different and bizarrely I started to learn Japanese Ah. and not that I'm amazing at languages but I just thought like you know what can I do to stand out from the crowd and and the funny thing is deep and I've told this on another podcast um it it had no immediate benefit but one sort of side benefit was that I found out that there were Japanese lessons at EY and going on, and they were free. So I, I sort of managed to wangle my yeah. way onto those. And a lot of the, um, the the people who were attending were sort of senior managers and directors, and I was a very mm-hmm. lowly trainee. And it just made, uh, and, and not that my Japanese was that great, but I think it helped sort of form a sort of relationship on a peer level. Uh, and because mine was slightly better than theirs, they sort of had a little bit of respect for me, which yeah. would definitely wouldn't have happened if, you know how it is, you as a trainee or even an associate, you meet these big guys uh, and girls. Um, there's that, that sort of power dynamic. So it's it's interesting, that whole idea of trying to um, stand out in a way, isn't it? Like yeah, Dory Clark says. I love that you were purposeful in that. I feel like mine didn't, again, wasn't, and part of maybe the message that we're going to get out of this podcast is a lot of things have just shown up and I've made the best of them. So to your point, I do think when a situation like that happens, I would have you know actively chosen to be different. But I think at the same time, I think it's really hard. I think part, and I'll be curious if this, if you had the same experience in the US at least, there is a real pressure to conform. There is a real pressure to kind of not focus on the things that make you different. And that's so much of what my work is about now. Like there, there is this idea that leadership looks a certain way here that I do think makes you not bring up all the things that make you different. And I, although I believe that we're in a shift around that, I think that's not historically how it's been. And so it's difficult. Yeah, it, well, I suppose it, it, it's a way you do it in a way, because I think if you can say that 
I, uh, there's this thing about me that's different, which can add value, which can give you um, insight. Say, I know uh, in the early days of tech, if you had a, a geeky interest in that, and then that can help you stand out. And, and it's funny, there are these sometimes very small things that if you just know a little bit more than somebody else, that yeah. m- makes you um, a specialist in that aspect. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think it's absolutely true when it comes to skills and it comes to things that you can learn. I think it's more challenging, at least here for me, my experience, it's more challenging when it comes to race and gender. You know, there was a lot of uh, 20 years ago, there were even a lot of women that did that did what I did. Right. And so it was challenging to always navigate and feel like, well, so what parts do I want to emphasize that I'm different? And what parts does it really behoove me to, to not emphasize that? Um, at the same time, I think my advice to folks that come after me is, yeah, figure out what makes you different, what figure out what, what you have joined, what you have interest in. And what I found, and I actually talk about this quite a bit, is towards the latter parts of my career, I did more inclusion reading. I did more, you know, reading on things that I cared about. When I was in TMT, I can't say there was ever a weekend where I picked up like a tech magazine or, you know, that was not what I did in my free time at all. Like I, I would work the crazy hours. I would do really well at what I did, but it wasn't what I picked up after hours. And as I started to gravitate more to what like really interested me, it all kind of changed. And so I think there's, there's truth in that. Well, I, I'm surprised you had any free time. You know, I mean, yeah, those consultants, they were. But I mean, when so I traveled, right? When I was on the airplane, like I definitely was not picking up a tech or telecom <laughs> magazine. I was reading a romance novel or something, you know? <laughs> um, but, but obviously, clearly, you had an affinity for consulting and ended up as a partner at a, a young age. Um, yeah. What do you think the, the qualities are that helped you in your journey to, um, to becoming a partner? Yeah, I think it's some of the things we've already talked about. So one of the things that I think, you know, I used to say, and I, I talk about in the book was I, my superpower was I could outwork anybody like I, you know, and that comes, I think, from being the daughter of immigrants, where you are taught to work really hard and, and put in the hours. And, you know, I didn't sleep a lot. And I was good at that. So there was some reward for being like that and for doing that. It also for me was feeling so different, feeling like, you know, I am not the MBA. And again, I didn't have enough words around race and gender at the time. But since I was that non MBA, and I didn't know a lot of the things that felt like everyone else knew, and I was also younger. So I went right from undergrad to grad to Deloitte. And so I was also as a senior consultant, a good four years younger than everybody else, oh, wow. um, which made me a little bit also different, right? Because they, most of them were married. Most of them were like in that process of they had worked before they went to grad school. And I, this, that was that was not what I'd done. I'd worked in politics, but not in this sort of role. There was There was a lot of that. And so as a result of that, I think... I was a little bit naive. Like I was open about the things I didn't know. And I don't know now, like I, I see a benefit in not sharing what I didn't know, but I think people saw what I didn't know as interesting because there's so much pressure in consulting that you know everything. Right? Part of what, what you get paid for is knowing everything. And I was very good at very comfortable saying like, I don't know things and can you show me? And I think that was just culturally a very different thing for a lot of people early on when I started my career. I think that's a great point you make, because I think sometimes uh, people try to pretend that they are something that they're not. Mm -hmm. And especially, I think, if you're working in these organizations where you're dealing with huge transactions, huge numbers, Mm -hmm. it's much better to be upfront and say, look, Mm -hmm. I don't really understand what you're talking about. Can you break it down? And I remember sort of from when I was working in in banking, say you're dealing, you you could do all the transactions, but then you get to the settlement phase. And actually, that's hugely important because if the money doesn't move, then uh, the transaction dies. 
and you're speaking to operations people and they have a particular language um, and they just assume you know everything. And I think the, the important thing there is to break everything down and say, look, literally talk me through how does the money flow from A to B to C um, and get you know, make sure everything settles. And I think the same thing in consulting or any speciality. If you don't know, it's much better to be upfront and honest rather than saying, yeah, 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 and then trying to Google it afterwards. Um, what do you I think? I think that's true. I, I, I think that's true. But I'd also say I don't think a lot of corporate cultures allow for that, to be honest with you. I mean, between the big personalities that exist across all consulting firms and also um, I think a little bit of the the male training where you don't talk about what you don't know, you talk about how you know, and there, that's a fundamental difference, I, I think, between men in business and women in business. And although I think it's changing, that the whole imposter syndrome, the whole confidence, the whole, you know, fake it till you make it is very different, I think, for men and women. And so I think you're right, but I think it's also, you know, that's where I used to struggle a lot. I used to struggle with like, so even though that is, I, I came from, a, I'm not an MBA, so I'm going to ask you. There was also a lot of confusion over like people seem to be pretending that they know things and that doesn't come naturally to me. That's very uncomfortable. And, and so it was, it was, there's navigation there that I think is different. But, but I think that's actually, um, if you look at the organization, that's a very dangerous place to be in mm-hmm. because then you, know, you get this sort of group thing culture. You have a very dominant uh, boss, whether it's male or female. Um, and they ha- have a particular worldview. And, and you know how it is. I'm sure you've been in meetings where yes. um, the, the boss uh, man or, or lady uh, starts speaking. And then effectively, that's the dominant view. Um, mm-hmm. And nobody's willing to speak up because obviously it's a career limiting move. Um, I mean, what, what do you think about that, Deepa? I think you have to pick your battles, right? So I think if it's something that... Um isn't like a moral issue or isn't going to, you know, do harm to the client that you're at. Right. I I see those situations happening more with clients when I was in that career where a client just is entrenched in what they want to do. And, you know, as a consultant, having been at many companies, it's not going to work. So I think part of it is understanding what situation, because some situations it it doesn't really make a huge impact and it's not worth dying on the sword for. Um, But I think in other situations, there are different things you can do. I think it's talking to that person one-on-one because sometimes part of what is happening is that need to be the, be the right person in a group situation. Um, And trying to point out that they're wrong actually hurts their ego in a certain way. So having a private conversation, I think figuring out who that person listens to and using that person to communicate what needs to happen. But I also think um, sometimes doing the pre-meeting before the meeting is also what I advise to a lot of people is is sometimes you have to, if if you know that there's going to be controversy around what you're bringing up, try and get them on your side before you actually have the main meeting in public, which sometimes honestly is more of a show than it is really where the decision is made, right? Oh, no, no, totally. I, I remember sort of going through um, sort of approvals and things. You have to go and speak to the individual um, head of a department and just figure out you know, what, what are his or her concerns yeah. and make sure everything is ironed out well before the actual big meeting. Um, yeah. Not to say that that big meeting isn't important because yeah, if there are things that have, have been missed out, they'll be fleshed out. But actually all the substantive material things, hopefully those are sorted out well uh, before that final meeting takes place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think um, sometimes you have to be creative and do all the things and every context is different, but not everyone takes in information all in the same way. You know, there's a there's a book that I was reading as I was doing research for my book and um, her name is Dolly Chung. And she points out that you know, sometimes how you t- share information is just as important as the information itself. And you can choose to share it with heat or you can choose to share it with light. And what she's saying is when you share something with light, 
you're sharing it in a way that maybe is a little bit packaged or a little bit softer because it's really important that you want them to, to almost buy into what you're saying. And she said, when you share it with heat, when, you, when it comes from an aggressive or an angry standpoint, it can be hard to take in, can get the same point across, but it's, it's also understanding your audience and, and how, how you share your point of view that also matters. And I, I think I think that's a great point because yes, you know, some people get very easily triggered and they feel that this is a personal attack Correct. against themselves. But actually, if you if you say, look, we're part of a team and we're going towards a goal, a common goal, yeah. and this is the way we get there, then yeah, no, no, I I, I totally agree with that approach. And 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 sort of moving um, you know, back back to your sort of the consulting career, obviously did incredibly well, made partner very early, but I, I believe that sort of towards the end of that. Career, you started thinking about moving in a different direction. Yeah, I did. I did. I probably around 16, 17 years in, I started having growing questions around purpose. So it started, you know, it was three things that came together that, you know, I think are important, especially for your listeners, given, given who they are. One was just bigger questions around purpose. And so, although I liked the work that I was doing, I was not, you know, doing what I went to school for, what I thought I'd be doing. And so I actually hired a coach and was working through these big questions around purpose and what I wanted to do. I'd become an Aspen fellow and which is a lot about social impact. And so there were these big questions around that. The second was health, right? So I started really having some challenges around health and part of it had to do with the lifestyle. I did three cities a week sometimes. I mean, and living out of a suitcase in a hotel and flying that much candidly. I flew, I flew cross country sometimes for a day meeting like every week. And so that really started to take its toll on me. And then I think bigger questions around just being a woman of color at work. Like we were in a moment where Me Too was coming up and other questions around what it meant to be a woman at work. Um, and I started to have, feel like this greater responsibility as I stepped into my inclusion roles around what does it mean to be an underrepresented group at work and, and what's happening with those voices. And so those three things came to a head for me and really had unearthed something. But ultimately, I chose to walk away after a very long process. Um, I started meeting with women of color to figure out, like, where do senior women of color go? And one on one, it started as dinners. And eventually, it turned into I did a series of 10 dinners across the country with my now business partner, Ra. We were just listening for like, what's an industry that's interesting that requires less travel that, you know, meet some of the things that I'm looking for around purpose. And we would get into these rooms of 20 and 30, you know, senior women and all VP level and above, because I was looking for a certain conversation, not women I knew. So just, you know, through LinkedIn or friends or friends, and we would have these dinners. And sometimes we'd be sitting at the table for six and seven hours. And these women were sharing stories about what it was like, like to navigate, which is where the book come from, came from, like to navigate as a first, a few and an only. They were all in these roles and these senior roles, but alone and really trying to figure out what does leadership look like and how do I use my voice? And so those dinners were magical and turned into the fodder for the book and also turned into my company. And I don't, I didn't know that that's what I was doing when I was gathering these women. I was just trying to figure out, I don't feel happy. I don't feel satisfied. My health is failing me. This doesn't feel like where I'm supposed to be anymore, but I hadn't, you know, I'd been there for so long that I didn't know what else was possible. I, th I think there's some really interesting points you, you bring up there. And I like, I like that idea of purpose, because I think mm -hmm. that is so important if you're thinking about, you know, you're putting long hours into something. And unless you can really see um, the bigger picture, and, and it's, it's like sort of with um, simple habits, like um, I want, you know, say you want to get uh, fitter, if there is a reason to get fitter, or I want to lose weight, if you can connect it to a higher purpose, like I want to you know, run a marathon, I want to spend more time playing with my children, then it's much easier, then you don't feel it as self-denial. I suppose moving on from that, you know, in terms of you know, meeting all these women of color, you eventually decided to 
put this sort of online platform information mm-hmm. together and, and build a community. And I, I love that because I think um, what I'm trying to do with the podcast, um, and I'm also looking to try to uh, design an app, is to try and build a community where it, it, everybody's trying to help each other. You're moving in the same direction. If you can see that there are other people going through similar issues yeah. like you, you take a lot of comfort in that. So um, would you like to maybe talk a little bit about sure. information and, and why you started it? Yeah. So information was built out of those dinners. Like There was such magic in those conversations. There was such vulnerability and there was such a freedom. So you know, I talk about in the book, this idea of me and we, right? You have to do like the work on yourself, but there's also this, this need to do work together, the power of we, and that's really what information is. And so it's a number of senior women of color and we've, you know, skewed more senior, although we're starting to offer things to less tenured women. And we did that purposely because we think there's different issues that come up, different challenges that come up at different stages of the career. And what we've done is really um, and we didn't know. So after the dinners, we thought we'll do something around community. We're not really sure if it's going to be a series of dinners, what that's going to look like. COVID happened here in the U.S. George Floyd's murder happened. So how you talk about race is really different. So the model kind of evolved from what we thought it was going to be to what it is. And so it became online and it became this, this place where we could gather and talk about different topics. We are a year old now and there are a lot of people showing up and the conversations are really helpful and really different. So yesterday we had a conversation about... Um, you know, Biden and the black, the, the discussion that there's going to be a black woman on the Supreme Court. And what does that really mean? And, you know, what does that mean for us? But also what is the burden that she has to bear as a result of being the only? And so it was a really interesting conversation that I don't think we get to have in other spaces, right? We've had conversations around identity, how even the label women of color, we all have different experiences. We've had conversations around navigating. So when you have a boss that isn't listening to you, what is the right way? So it, it's very, it is work oriented, but it's also these bigger conversations on what it means to navigate navigate life, I think, in some ways, when you have these other um, aspects to you that you don't always get to talk about. You know, it's really fascinating because I think I see such difference amongst the women on uh, where they taught about race and talk about race from a ch- from childhood or a lot of the Asian and Indian women in the group and myself, like weren't taught to talk about race. That wasn't something you talked about. Like it was kind of like just work hard and it'll be all be fine. And that really, I think, sets us up for some really interesting <laughs> challenges. And so the community is really oriented towards talking about things that don't that don't get talked about. But I think as a result of that happening, there's a lot of freedom. So even just in six months, we took a poll of the women and 25% of them had has asked for bigger jobs or more money or left their roles. They attribute as a result of being in the community. And to your point, just being seen and seeing others. So it's not anything magical we're teaching. I think it's just that they're seeing other women and feeling like, well, I'm not getting paid enough. She's not getting, let's do it together. You know, let, let's, you know, I'm not alone. I, I, I can ask for more and it's okay. I just love that. From that, you know, the book came along, um, you know, the, the first, the few, the only. I've been reading it, really, really enjoyed it. And I, I love this concept of taking power back mm-hmm. because I think you know, in the world, there are so many situations where people feel powerless. And yes. part of the reason why I started doing the podcast is that it's that whole reframing the situation. And, yeah. I, and I love a line that you came up with. I was watching one of your interviews with uh, Ra Goddess and somebody else. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that thing about uh, you don't want to, is it need a client more than you want yes. to? And yes. I think that, and, and I think that applies across the board, whether it's mm-hmm. uh, to your job, whether it's to your partner, mm-hmm. or, you know, it's like you, 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 you can't be so invested and need that person that thing so much that you can't walk away. And I think, you know, a lot of companies 
they they're relying on that that situation that you you need this job and you're desperate. And I think if you can reframe the situation and make sure that okay, maybe you have a nest egg on the side, or you are so um, highly skilled that if push comes to shove, you can move away. Then I think it just flips that whole power dynamic uh, on its head. And so when you're speaking to your boss or, or whoever it is, you know that okay, um, they they can potentially treat me badly for like a, a short term period, but in the long run, they just can't do that because I can walk. I think that that's really changed, right? I think the fact that you know people stay in their jobs le- less than ever before. I think with COVID and the great grand resignation and great resignation, I think that's also changed. So I completely agree with that. I think we're in a moment where people feel comfortable that there are other opportunities available to them. And if something isn't right, maybe they can't leave today, but they're going to leave like in 90 days. You know, that's as long as it's taking people to find roles now. Um, So I think it's a really interesting time to be an employee and to be really clear about what your boundaries are and what you need. I talk about in the book, this, this um, sitting down with a senior partner when I was new. And, he, you know, he said every couple of years, go, go through the interview process at another company just to know your worth and to know that you can. Um, and the advice you're talking about is from one of my mentors. It's my favorite business advice. And he said, yeah, never need a client or want a client, you know, more than you want a client. And we were talking about a particular client, but I do think it applies to life. And I think part of what, what my work is about is in meeting all these women. So now I've met thousands of women of color. I think there's also a lot that we're taught consciously and unconsciously. So I think as a children of immigrants, a lot of us were taught like security is important to stay in the job, just be quiet, just put up with it. Like that, that sort of um, setup as an example is just one example makes us stay in situations that don't work for us. And so I think we are in a moment that where um, more than ever, I would say, especially in the U S like the, that women of color right now are getting calls left and right. The women in information are getting calls weekly for other opportunities. And so if, tre- if cultures don't treat them correctly, there is, there is more opportunity than ever to walk away. And I think also there's also now more opportunity and interest in creating our own businesses that work for us too. So if corporate culture, regardless of where you go, is not going to work, well, then we'll go create our own. So yeah, we're in a moment where I think businesses are having to reckon with what does it mean? Because more more employees are willing to do what they need to take care of themselves. But I also think sort of going forward, um, I think having that a mindset of, you know, I am the asset, I am the the, mm-hmm. the, the talent that is producing the revenue. I think if you can uh, change the way you view yourself, almost say yeah. yourself as a company, as a startup, I'm, I'm actually loaning my services to the company. So rather than having that sort of master-servant relationship, it, you have much more agency and control. And Absolutely. I think the problem for a lot of people is it, they just don't feel it's, it's a lack of control, um, isn't it, to some extent? Absolutely. And I think that's how the model was set up, right? So much of my work is about the structural challenges. It's less about, you know, what we need to do as individuals, although there's things we need to do. But I think there's been denial till date that the system itself is set up to exploit, right? That the system is set up to take advantage. The system is set up so that we overwork and we overtry and, you know, we get sick and all of those things. And so I do think we're in a moment where there's a lot of rethinking about bigger conversations to your point. And and what does it mean? And like, what's the, you know, one of my favorite questions right now is like, what's the space that work should take in our lives, right? Like so many of us have make our lives work around work, but that's so backwards to, if you really think about it and sit and think about it, that's not how the world should work. And that's not how things work like 50 years ago. Like somehow in the last 50 years, things have really shifted to this frenzy where work is taking over our lives. And who does that serve? And is that really the right direction that we should be heading is I think really where I find like the real weight of the question. 
And I, I, th- I think that's a great point. And, and sort of moving on from that, um, I think in your book, you talk about this whole idea of microaggressions and worse, mm-hmm. both being people of color. I think mm-hmm. we've come across situations where th- these things have happened to sort of friends of ours, or you, you've heard of it, of, of, of these things happening. And you know, sometimes people feel very powerless because uh, they don't want to be seen to, to rock yes. the boat. Yeah. I think sometimes with these things, it's, it's very nuanced because, you know, sometimes maybe you, you're in a situation or where, you know that person really well and they may say something, but you know, it, it's just like a one-off thing or there's, there's a different type of situation. And, and, and I mean, how, how do you think one should navigate that? Because I think you uh, touch on that in, in yeah. your book. It's really hard. So one of the things I think that people don't understand, and then I'll answer what we should do on the other side is that, you know, as people who are on, on the side receiving side, I think they don't realize that we have been trained in a lot of ways to not acknowledge those things. Like there's no glory and there's no, in most cases, no benefit to acknowledging you just said something racist or you just said something that is microaggressive, right? Like the, the, we have not been taught that. Like, I feel like my parents taught me just to like, keep it moving, right? Like, like don't make, don't make it more difficult. Yeah, and so I up. think that there, yeah, suck it. There, so there's a real challenge and a real shift that has to happen for people who are on the other side. I also think that it's shocking. It's so, I mean, I can't tell, no matter how many times it happens, every time it's shocking. And so one of the things I talk about in the book is don't be flat-footed. And so practice, like I encourage all the women I mentor to to have like three things that you can say when someone is going to say something inappropriate, because I guarantee in your career, those three things will be said, if not weekly, you know, three times in your career. So practice, like that really makes me uncomfortable. I don't, know that you you understood what you just said. I really need us to talk about that later, right? Those are simple things, but in the moment, like you can just be overwhelmed with emotion. And did that, did that just happen is a real thing. I think I used to ask myself and a lot of women and a lot of people ask themselves. So that's one. But what's interesting is I'm also encouraging allies to do that, right? Because I think it's not just our work when we're in a conference room and something happens for us to correct it. And as allies, it's the same thing. They're also uncomfortable because they're afraid, like, did that just happen? What am I supposed to do? Am I then saving, you know, the person? that is microaggressed on. So I think that we all have to practice in moments that feel uncomfortable. What is our intervention and what is our statement? And I think that's true for everybody. Yeah, because it, it is really difficult because look, if, if that person, uh, you know, has actually genuinely misspoken or whatever, then, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it, it's a tricky one because you know, sometimes the, you know, some of these people are actually good people but yes. they say some off things um yes. and and obviously you don't want to be in a situation where you're um having you know, they're, they're getting in trouble or whatever so it's, yes. it's 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 not a black i think with all these things they're not black and white there's a nuance yes. to it but i think you know from a company perspective you want to make sure that the people who are feeling um you know mistreated or they have some um something that they can do or, or try and rectify the situation in some some sort of way um um, what do you yeah, think? I think I think it's I think it's a really difficult issue. I don't and I don't think there's one answer. So I think that's absolutely right. I also part of me is encouraging more women of color to speak up more than they ever have before because we also aren't going to change cultures if we don't speak up about them, right? And I know it's uncomfortable and it's not our work, but I also think I'm tired of letting too many things go that maybe they didn't have the worst intent. Like why is that on me to filter through? Like why can't I just say that really didn't land well? You know, happy to explain that later. You know, and and 
what's the harm in that? But I, I also, I also, at the same time, when I meet with allies, I often tell them like, you need to give yourself permission to get it wrong. Like this is hard work. If we, if this was easy, we would not be talking about these things. Or we wouldn't be the, in the situations that we're in. So there also has to be grace and permission that all of us, including me are going to get it wrong. Even though I do this work, I can't be perfect. And there's words that are now, you know, inappropriate that weren't inappropriate like a month ago, like it, the whole vernacular, the whole world is changing at a speed on these topics. Topics. And so just have some grace and have some, um, give yourself permission to, to mess up and to apologize. I mean, in the same way that I'm telling people to practice what they should say to intervene, maybe I should also be telling them to practice apologizing because you're not all going to get it right all the time. No, no, totally. As we were talking about before, this whole idea of with immigrants and uh, the children of immigrants, mm-hmm. you have this whole idea of you know, your parents tell you just work hard, mm-hmm. keep your head down, and that will be um, good enough to get on. Mm-hmm. This just isn't enough. You need to be yeah. strategic, and I think that really aligns with the, with the the the, this, the podcast and the work that I, I'm yeah. doing. In the sense that you know you really need to to understand you know the, where you're trying to get to, yeah. how you're trying to get there. Um, who, maybe who are the people that you should be uh, teaming up with? Who are your mentors? Who are your sponsors? So in a way, there's a much bigger picture going on, and the whole idea of okay, working hard is good but it should be in a, in a much bigger context of uh, bringing people on board who, um, and, and there are people out there who want to help you um, move forward. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, my work is really, and I, I have the ability to do that and I'm privileged enough to be able to do that. Like I walked away from a big career to do what I wanted to do for a variety of reasons, but I was able to, right. And so I want to push people to push on the system because I think the system isn't working. And so I do, I do encourage women and women of color to, to go there because I think if we don't, you know, who's going to, and if there was ever a moment where we could, it's now, right? Because there's more grace for us as well to point out things than there ever was before. At the same time, there's a chapter in the book that it sounds like your listeners will like this chapter, maybe the best. There's a chapter in the book called How You Play the Game While You Change the Game. And I really didn't want to write that chapter. That was the last chapter I wrote. Um, and I really struggled with it because I feel like there's so many uh, books out there on how to play the game. And part of what I feel like I'm saying is, playing the game at what cost. But I did that chapter because to your point, I think there are ways that you can navigate in the system that you can pick and choose. You can decide what energy you put to all things because if you are in a structure, it's also not possible for you to stand up to everything, for you to call out everyone's behavior, for you to, you can't, like that's not, the system doesn't allow for that either. And so there are things that you can do to have more voice. There are people who are true allies and there's ways you can seek out sponsors and mentors and have different conversations with them. So I did include that chapter, even though I, I, it's not my favorite chapter. It seems to be everyone else's favorite chapter, but yes. <laughs> no, actually, my next question was mm-hmm. you know, talking about how to play the game while mm-hmm. you change the game, because yeah. I think that's really important because, you know, I think especially the more senior you get, um, and I'm sure you would have seen that, is that you know, people are not, not that they're not straight, but there's a lot of subtext going on and people aren't going to be direct with you. So I think you have to understand the rules of the game. You know, how do you get on with people? Yeah. Um, maybe talking about stuff that you're not that interested in just to be able to form yeah. um, connections. You know, so it, it's funny how you're trying to, um, you know, build these relationships, understand what it is that other person wants. But, but also, I think also looking at the other person's perspective and thinking, okay, what can I do for um, that peer or that boss that makes um, them uh, feel better to some extent? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, 
I, I haven't articulated this before in conversations, but I think what I'm, I mean, if, if your desire and you find your power from playing the game in a, in a masterful way, like more power to you. I'm just saying that I realized from doing some of that, that's not the game I want to play anymore. Um, and I think my, the, the entire book and the whole conversation I'm having with women is agency, right? Is, is knowing that you have a choice. So what I think about when you ask me that question is when I was earlier in my career, there used to be a lot of discussion as a woman, do you have to read the sports section, right? So that you can come in on Monday and have conversations about football. And there was a camp of women who said, yes, like they would literally watch every game and they would read all the newspapers so they could have the conversations with both their clients and the other partners on Monday. And I never did like, so from the beginning, cause I had no interest and I wasn't going to spend any more time doing something I didn't want to do. I didn't. And I do think that there's always been those two camps. And that's an example that I think has more history. And I think I'm saying the same thing here. Like all of these things are ways that you can operate and I'm okay with the women who want to read the sports paper. And even if they're not interested, I'm just saying like, that is a conscious choice. And what is not clear to people is that you have choice around that. There are different ways of doing it. And so just be really understanding and be really active in making that choice. And then I'm fine with it, right? But that's, I think the difference is that the system The system requires us to do certain things to lead. It requires certain things to be seen as successful. And I'm just saying part of the work is the structure has to change. Those definitions have to change, but we also have to know when we're playing into them and be much more thoughtful and choiceful about how we do that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think there's not one right way of doing things. And ultimately, you have to be authentic. But also, I think it's important for the the, the other people to realize, look, not everybody's going to be interested in sports. Um, yeah. not every, so, so yes. I mean, don't be a bore about yes. it. You know, try not to exclude people from the conversation. Yeah. I think that's true. And I think just to take it one step further, I guess what I'm also saying when we when we navigate in a lot of these spaces where that is who has been led and who has kind of owned some of the narrative, there are things outside of sports that you know are just taken as mainstream that we also have to be conscious of. And so that's what I think is starting to happen in conversations, in, you know, in the U.S. at least of like what where well, like who owns the narrative and in what ways are is a narrative being controlled or defined that we aren't even privy to or you know, don't even understand anymore. So sports. I think it's a great example and it's clear, but there's some other areas where it's not as clear. And so that's really what we, where the work is for all of us to figure out. I don't know that. I think that's a, a great point. And, and, and also I think sometimes, yeah, as we've been talking about, people are put in, in a situation where, you know, for whatever reason, it, it could be that they're, you know, they're not happy in their job and they need to consider leaving. And I love the way you talk about this in the stay or go chapter. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's originally what the whole book was going to be It's going to be a whole book on stay or go and my agent who's a very well known agent was like, you can't write a book on just on stay or go right (laughs) encouraging everybody to go that's not a good book. Um, Although with a great resignation, maybe that would have been a good book. Um, But yeah, I just I, I talk about the things that you should do if you stay and like how to evaluate where the whether a culture is friendly to you. Um, and then also what to do if you go, because a lot of people are going and there are ways to go in, in and also um, honor like the leaving process. So for example, a lot of women who go start their own businesses have shared with me their biggest clients are their former 
companies. And so, you know, not ending and setting thing, everything ablaze is also like you take your relationships with you, you take your history with you, you take your reputation with you in good and bad ways. And so recognizing that and also exiting places in the right way is also part of it. It's also this guide of how do you figure out where to go? Because a lot of cultures are the same. So if you're going to go, here's some questions to ask yourself. Here's some things to think about. Um, here's you do how you do the due diligence, because Although there's a lot of people hiring right now, there's also a lot of people moving and calling me in six months saying they're no, they're not any happier at their new place, right? A lot of senior women are calling me saying that I was promised all these things. Here I am six months in a role and none of those things have come to fruition. So it's almost all those things. How do you figure out if you should stay? How do you like leave well? And what do you think about? And then also, you know, how do you, how do you figure out and evaluate a culture to figure out if it's going to be healthy for you? No, I, and I think that's a great point. The whole idea, you really need to think about, um, you know, what, what, what are you trying to get from mm-hmm. going? It could be that uh, if you stay in your current role, maybe you might be able to, especially look uh, if people are leaving, maybe you might be able to work it in a slightly different way. Because I always believe, look, uh, unless things are really bad where you are, um, try and see, is there a way of trying to rework your situation? You know how it is when you're being uh, courted by companies, they'll promise you the world. Hopefully you get paid a bit more, but there are all these other things they'll say, um, which may or may not be completely accurate. You know, are these people um, being straight with me or not? Changing roles and jobs. It is, it is a big change. And, and to your point, you don't really want to burn any bridges with the people uh, who, who you've been with for, for a while. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I say that it usually takes six months to a year to get settled in a new company. So leaving and starting over is not an easy process, especially <laughs> the book talks about women of color because you're reacclimating, right? You're finding your way again, that you're finding, figuring out what the norms are of every, you know, of your new company. And that's part of what this work is about, right? This work is really about understanding the norms that exist in your company culture and rewriting the ones that don't work for all of us and understanding the ones that do so that you can play within, within those rules, right? And so, um, but every company has a culture. And that's really what we're trying to get at the heart. Like what's important, what's valued, what's seen as successful, what is punished, you know, what is, what, what do we take actions? Like those are all real things and those actually differ by company and it's interesting. But, but I also think that you should never have that mindset where you can't leave. And, and it's the, yeah. to that point we were talking about, you know, needing something and wanting something. Yeah. You'd never be afraid to go. Um, even if you don't have the ideal thing to go to, sometimes things may just not be right where you are. And I, I've seen situations where people are in a, in a situation which isn't great. And, you know, they're being sort of worn down day by day to some extent. And, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where, say, you get sick or you lose your confidence. And I think that makes such a difference because, say, you're uh, interviewing. I think if you're not confident and if you don't believe in yourself, then you know, even if the ideal cup job comes along, you won't be in the right headspace to, to get it. I think we're in a moment where historically, and I got this advice when I was thinking of leaving, like you can't leave until you have something better lined up. Like that's what we tell everybody, right? Like have your next thing lined up and it has to be better if you're going to leave what you're leaving. I think the last two years, people are leaving in without anything lined up and maybe without a desire to work for a while, right? Like I, I just... 
it's a different world. And I think that's part of what we all have to understand. And um, there is no shame in leaving. You know, one of the most interesting things is when I announced my leaving on LinkedIn, I knew I had like a lot of people that from the company that would watch and other things. I had so many private messages from Indian people saying to me, men and women saying to me, like, how did you tell your parents you were leaving? You know, like, how, like they're, they're, they must've been, there must've been shame or concern or all these things around leaving. Right. And so it's just so interesting. So I think that we all have like such history and such baggage around leaving and what we should do versus what we want to do and all of that stuff that really has to be unpacked. But yeah, I don't think it's good advice anymore to say you have to have the next best thing lined up and you have to have bigger and better. Like I, I don't think that's true. I think if you, if a culture is not working for you and you know, it's taking from you and it's depleting from you, it's almost better to get out, to get to a better place. And then to your point, to go interview in a very different mindset. Cause if you take that woundedness to your interview, that's not going to help you or set you up for success. So I think we're also in a phase where people are in a very different way, focused on well-being and trauma and, you know, all of the, like a conversation about that, that we've never had before in relation to work. That was always a separate thing. You didn't talk about that at work. And I think it's, we're at a moment where people are taking care of themselves in a different, just starting to have the discussion, but, but needing to. So. And, and, and actually, if you do have the economic ability to step away from something, yeah. I think sometimes it's great to have time to just think about yourself, think about your purpose, think about what you like doing and actually try new things. Um, and, and so you know, f- for me, uh, doing this podcast, I, I couldn't say I ha- had any particular talent or inclination to be mm-hmm. a podcaster. But, but actually, um, once you start and the more you, you do it, hopefully the, the better you become. And I think with a lot of things, there are skills that you can pick up um, which uh, it's about putting the, the time and the work and the grind in and you will become better. Um, and I think there are many things in life that, you know, especially uh, given the way jobs are changing, the world of work is changing. You have to be adaptable um, going forward to, to some extent. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I love this term in the book. One of the women said to me, you need to take a radical sabbatical. Right. And um, when we unpacked that, what she was saying was just six months. And a lot of the women that I met that were at these senior levels did that they took six months because they could, I mean, to your point, again, they had the financial ability to do that. Not everybody can, but they took six months to just stop and one, figure out who they were without their title. Cause there's, you know, even for me, like my identity was my work, like walking in a place and saying I was a partner, like was a thing, right? Like there's a lot of like baggage and lot of definition that comes with that to not have that is a really was a really like struggling thing for me but a lot of these women that I've met have take the time and they're also just healing themselves because there is something about the overwork and the overproducing and that puts your body in a certain energy in a certain place in a certain health and so just the six months to even figure that out what I have found in me working with all these women is that they end up sometimes in a different place what they thought they were going to do in six months is not what they do because once you come off that overwork and overperform and like that doing energy, you end up realizing maybe that's not what I want. I don't care about another bigger role with more money and a bigger title. It's actually, I want to shift my life. And so those pauses and those spaces, I think really puts you into a different set of questions and we're not set up to really do that well. And I I think that's a great point you brought up about the title, because I think for so many people, um, they see themselves or the, the the way the world sees them is as the VP, the director, mm-hmm. the, the partner, it, it defines you to some extent. And if you're too wedded to that title, then actually leaving is a much harder thing. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a massive sort of psychological element mm-hmm. to that. So I think you, you did very well to walk away and not be the partner. Mm-hmm. Did, did you find that tough or did that, or was that just a process of make it gradually coming to that realization? 
Yeah, no, I mean, I, I had the health thing intervene. So I ended up taking eight months to focus on getting well. I was still with the company. I took a leave of absence. And so, you know, that was huge because my whole life was Deloitte. I'd been there since I was in my, you know, early twenties. Like I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I married another partner, right? Like my whole, my whole life was Deloitte. And so this idea that I wasn't going to do that was really overwhelming. And I think the space away, the eight months where I was on leave helped me realize like I could fill my space with other things. Like part of it was also a lifestyle. Like I, like I explained, I traveled all the time to be in a house, like to be in my house for eight months was not 20 years. I'd never done that to watch like television in the middle of the day, like never happened. Right. Like, so it was like a whole different, like, this is what I used to say, this is what normal people do. And that's such like a bad, you know, label, but I used to think like, I, I never did those things. I never went to dinner on a Tuesday night because I was never home, you know, um, meaning in my hometown. And so it was just a really strange way to like reprogram and really rethink about things. And so I think that space allowed me to realize like I am more than my job. And that was a really big reprogramming because um, I fought so hard to get that big title. Right. And there's a lot of clout and a lot of um perks that come with that title. And I was giving them all away without clarity on what was going to come next. But I also think for your listeners, it's important to know, like I sold my book to a major publisher six weeks after I left. You know, we started the company shortly after that. And within a year, we've been on a TED main stage. We've had folks like Billie Jean King and, you know, many others were about to do a, a big symposium with some really big names. Like a lot of things have happened that I think had I planned, had I waited for the next thing, I wouldn't have even dreamed of happening. And so sometimes you just have to leap. Like sometimes you just have to know I'm not in the right place, even if it's not bad for you, it's just not the right place for me anymore. And I, I think I just... I don't, I, I think I outgrew it. I don't mean it in a bad way. Like I outgrew them. I just think like what I needed for myself changed. And in those ways I grew. And, and it's interesting because I think what, what you want uh, or what your goals are in your twenties are uh, mm-hmm. different from the thirties, the forties, fifties, you know, going yeah. forward in life. And I think you have to be constantly thinking is, is what I'm doing now really fulfilling me? Is it satisfying me? Is it what I really want to be doing? And if it's not, then, potentially as as you've done okay there was a health element but i think if you can uh be on the front foot rather than the back foot that is a it's much more powerful um to be almost shaping your life and taking control of your destiny do you think so Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think for me, there was a lot of, even though I entered Deloitte, not thinking I was going to be there forever at some point, four or five years in, it was like, well, I'm going to be here. Then I want to be one of the youngest partners ever. And I'm going to be on that track and all the things that come with that. And I think at some point later in my career, I had ever like so far surpassed everything I dreamed of, even like in climbing the ranks of the partnership. And so like those things that stopped satisfying me, like there was no more first to have, like, you know, I had presented at the partner meeting in front of 7,000 people. Like I'd done all the things, was taking main stages, talking about my, like all these things. And so, um, yeah, like that, the, 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 just the ambition for the ambition or like the success for the success stopped having meeting for me in addition to the health stuff. And so it was like, I get, there's something else here. And so the work became more than I'm the first and I'm going to break that barrier to there's a lot of extra and there's a lot of unsaid that comes with being a first. And like, how do we put words around that? Because that's really what needs to change. Yeah. You know, I, it's in some ways sad that in corporate America, I made partner, I think at this point, 14 years ago, right. Or 15 years, that's not that long ago go, you know, and that I was the first is, I think, a sad statement on where we are as a corporate America, you know, and so, um, yeah, the work just changed for me, and it became less about proving and checking a box or reaching the ambition or the, the first of something else new or some new committee or something else I was leading, those things stopped being satisfying. And it was really more about 
that's great. I have all these roles and these titles, but what am I doing with it? And how, like, what ability do I have to do? Like how much space do I have to really, to make change? Yeah. I think that's a great point you make because I think sometimes, yeah, just chasing after these titles is quite a dangerous game because when you get there, um, then you think, oh yeah, what, what do I do next? Yeah. They're empty sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's about just the process. You know, do Mm -hmm. you enjoy doing what you're doing? Are you getting some satisfaction out of it? Okay. Maybe you might not be the best at it, but if you are getting some satisfaction and you feel you're improving and you can make some money out of it, then, you know, that that's great. And that that's good for you. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, and, and, and finally, Deepa, just in terms of your um, journey, would you like to share maybe a, a couple of things for people who are looking for work or trying to develop in their career? Yeah, I guess my overall advice is to really listen to yourself and to really lean into what makes you different and what you enjoy and what you excel at and what you gravitate to. Like back to that story of, you know, on the weekends, I didn't read TMT magazines. Like, so to pay attention to those things, because there is a lot that, um, that, we can do with our time and our lives and life is too short. And the last couple of years have shown us that. So I think we should be doing more of what gives us joy and what makes us different and really what makes us excel. I also think, you know, try and find spaces where you can grow yourself, but you can also affect change. That's so much of the work that we all have to do. Um, And I also think my last message would be to take care of yourself, right? This is a really hard time. Like half of us are still remote everything. Some people are in the office. It's like a really complicated place. And we've unpacked a lot about what's not working in the world, right? I mean, that's, that's where we are. Like, I think, I think we're, we've, we're in the part where we've unpacked everything and everything's on the ground and we're figuring out how we put it back together. But when it's on the ground and unpacked, it's messy, it's complicated, it's emotional, it's stressful. Um, and then we just have to have more grace with ourselves as we figure it out. But I would encourage your listeners to, to trust themselves and to leap and that, um, we all have power to make change and we all have power to live the lives that we want, but sometimes we have been told not to, and that that's the work that we have to do is to, to believe that we can, and you have to rewrite those narratives for yourself. Yeah. And I think that's a great point about power. I think we have far more power than we think. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's just the narrative of the world that has said, look, just accept what you're given in terms yep. of the, the employee employer relationship, or you can't leave, or you can't do something different. Actually, it's about you know, uh, re, um, reimagining, changing your perspective, reframing. And there are so many different things that we can be doing um, internally because you know, the, the world is the way the world is and you can't really change that, but you can change yourself and the way you react to certain situations. And I think that's you know, you know, what you've been talking about in your yeah. book. Take that power back and yeah. actually, okay, uh, the, the world isn't fair and, and that's just a fact, but yep. what you can do is take uh, control back to a certain extent, do everything you can to uh, change yourself, upskill yourself, uh, create relationships, build your network, get people on board. Um, is, is that? Do, do, I think I love that. I think that's very true. I think the only thing I would tweak is I also now believe that we can make the change, right? Like, so I also think it's on because structures aren't going to change on their own. You know, there's a line I love in the book where I interviewed this lobbyist and she's like, she's reminded me of in olden days, they used to say, you know, um, when a king died, you know, the king just died long live the king because right there would there would be a succession plan like the new king had been planned and the point of that story was you take power from one and you give it to the other and her point was we're doing that we're giving the power we're, they were not a king 24 hours ago like we are giving them the power and in that same sort of way we can take power back from structures too but we have to want to and so yeah i love what you said i would just add like i want us to also 
change the structure. Like we don't have to accept how it is. And that's our work too. Oh, and, 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 and sorry, one last point, I think with the structure, mm-hmm. you also need to think, be clever about the fights that you pick Yes, and think totally. about, be very strategic and look, sometimes <laughs> however much you want to change it, 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 it it's very difficult and, and just be very cognizant of the, the type of environment you're in. And I think you mentioned that on a, uh, one of your other. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, certain places aren't, aren't going to let you set things ablaze. And so, yeah, again, it's back to that picking your battles. And I, I think it's also about finding your uh, co-conspirators and the, your allies while you do that. Right. Like, so you can't take on structural change by yourself, which is why communities like information are so important because you need, you need to be reminded and you need support when you get the backlash, you know, uh, and that's part of the process and part of the, how you make it happen. So. No, I j- just love that. And and just a bit before we leave um, Deepa, is there anybody mm-hmm. you'd like to give a, a shout out to who's helped you in your career and your journey um, you know, it could be a personal thing, um, a colleague, um, anybody? Yeah. I mean, there's so many, there's, there were so many white male partners at Deloitte that really helped me in particular and helped me find my voice and my path within Deloitte. And I still talk to them all, even though I've left. So folks like Jerry Belson and Schaefer Hilton were like huge in my career. Um, you know, Ra, who is my business partner now was my coach for the last five years. And that's how I made some of the transition I made when I was leaving. And so she's been a huge impact. And then I would just say, you know, my husband like has been really helpful as we both pivoted from, he was a partner at Deloitte as well and left to go start his own business. And so um, just having people in your circle. And I think that's maybe the, the it's, I love the question, but I also think that's part of what I learned the hard way. I didn't have a lot of the, that support mechanism when I was in corporate because I was so busy working. And part of what you realize is um, you're only as healthy and as safe and as successful as, as the resources you can call upon when you're in trouble. And so I, I now have a very big circle of people I can call upon, but that only helped happen when I left and I was much more conscious of creating that. And I, I just love that. And I think it's those people who yeah, have helped you in your career. And, and definitely for me, there are a lot of, you know, uh, sort of you know, white colleagues who have been very helpful and have formed great relationships with um, who've, you know, definitely helped me um, in terms of you know, jobs or advice or whatever. And I think sometimes it's just that personal relationship, because I think uh, you know, if you feel that that person uh, gets you, look, even if maybe they met, might say something off, you think, oh, they've yeah. misspoken. And I think a lot of it is just that genuine um, trust and, you know, that, and the relationship is there. And I think sometimes a lot of the problems that happen is that uh, people, um, they just don't have a relationship. So then people misinterpret things and then things get blown up in a way that they shouldn't. But I think if the fundamental relationship is good, then uh, yeah, there's a lot a lot of sort of give and take and people, um, they, they understand that you know, we all make mistakes. Um, yeah. Don't you think so? Yeah, absolutely. I also think that um, part of what we need is to have more diverse friends and, and bigger yeah. groups, because that's also how we learn from each other. I mean, data that was that's in the book shows that we tend to only gravitate towards people who look like us, both in our personal lives and at work. And as a result, it, there is that group think even in the groups that we keep in the company we keep. And so part of what I think just happens as you expand your friend group and your circle group and your community and the people you trust is you just hear other, you know, diverse voices. Cause yeah, I agree with you. I don't believe all people are bad or that's not where I come from, but I also think people have been taught certain things and you can't un- unlearn them unless you're in community. And so that's part of the work too. Brilliant. Um, anyway, Deepa, thank you so much for thank your time. You. Yeah, I loved um, this conversation um, and I wish you all the best with the book um, and uh, with information. Um, hope it goes really well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Take you care. Too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. 
That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.